All right, welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Helper. And uh, we have a, new, a great episode coming up for you. A couple of things up front. First of all, I just want to make an announcement. I made a terrible mistake, and I'm hoping somebody out there can help me. Robin D'Angelo is having a, an online seminar this weekend, and I planned to attend uh, while on hallucinogens. And I bought all the drugs, uh, but was too late in buying a ticket. Uh, which oh, is also, it's already closed. So if there's somebody out there who has a ticket to this July 18th all day Robin D'Angelo seminar and is willing to set, I mean, I'm willing to pay almost any price, frankly. Uh, so if you have a ticket to this thing and are willing to give it to me, um, I will, I promise to eat a, a dangerous quantity of drugs and, and attend that seminar uh, this weekend and, uh, and then write about it later. So just wanted to get that out of the way. All right. I want that too. Um, I may not uh, <laughs> ingest any drugs, but I want to go. And this is an online thing, and somehow the tickets are sold out. They're sold out, they, and the cost is from seventy-five dollars to one hundred seventy-five dollars. I guess you have different differing levels of video access. I don't know. Really? It's pretty, oh, I thought yeah. it was going to be based on like your your skin color or something. Oh, that might be true too. I'm, I'm I whites, hope that's whites true. Whites should pay, you know, sliding sliding racial scale. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If you I have an in on this thing and, and, you know, don't really want to attend. And I'm happy to tell you everything that happens in it. So you can tell your bosses later uh, right. what happened. And then, you know, we can go from there. Uh, so anyway, just wanted to make that announcement. Um, how are you doing? What, what's going on with I'm you? Okay. Yeah. I'm okay. I'm yeah. okay. Um, I don't know if I should make this announcement. We can cut it out, but I feel like I need to tell people who are just watching, not listening to the show that maybe my hair looks good to you guys, in which case cut this out. But if it looks greasy, I just want to let you know, I put coconut oil on it. Ah, And okay. I'm a little worried it makes it look like it's greasy and dirty, but I can't tell. Maybe it looks nice. The point is, though, either I owe it all to coconut oil because my hair looks nice, or it's coconut oil's fault if it doesn't look nice. But that's what's in my hair. I, I think it looks good, Katie. Right, what, what, thank you. What, what's, what's your ruling, Dan? It looks good. Looks right. good? Actually, it's funny. People have noticed uh, your hair uh, on the show. In fact, they're paying, they've paid um, some attention to it. Oh, we, what do they we, say? We actually got clowned pretty successfully, both of us, <laughs> this week. Uh, Dan, if you could show the, uh, the, the tweet that we got. Oh it's actually going to be interesting to see which, which of us is right. more embarrassed by this. Matt and Katie Helper starring in their own episode of Good Porning America. Okay, let's see. This is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> should, we set, set up, should we set up what that means? Uh, yeah, I guess. Well, we, we did. You know, we did an, uh, a segment where we were talking about who was it again? Um, Mark, Mark Levin. Levin, Mark Levin or Levin, and um, Charlie Kirk. I think it's one of our best segments ever. But yeah, right. We and we were, we were the, we, the, the sexual tension and porn potential of their interaction because yeah. it looked like Mark Levin got did boner. Uh, what do I call it? Boner obfuscation. Yeah, well, there the was a little obfuscation move, right? When Charlie Kirk mentioned um, the role of private property. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so um, somebody got inspired by that segment, and okay. uh, and let's see what they came up with. Let's just let's just make it very clear. I am completely against ever, and I, I have never done this in my entire life. Called for anybody to be fired. Um, I think it's. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs>
somebody of their livelihood. Um, and I, it's, it's incredible, incredible to me that people are so casual about it these days. And so I, I, I don't even like to joke about that. I know you, I, yeah. But I mean, there are, one of the people who signed this letter is Catherine Collins. Like, right, right. All right, it, it just kind of goes on like that. Explain this to viewers. Explain this to listeners only, I mean. They take the footage of our chat. And it's it's me sounding like a self-important asshole ranting and without somebody really caring whether anybody's listening. And uh, and then you, uh, how would you describe that? I noticed this when I was watching that. I was like, what the hell am I doing? I'm like, I think I had like, uh, and I still do, I have a lot of tension in my upper back and neck. So I was yeah, like, you look a little tense. Would you, would you like a, would you like a background? Exactly. Yeah. That's a, that's a callback. To, that's a callback to what we thought Mark Levin would be saying to Charlie Kirk. So uh, I was like, kind of giving myself a, uh, an upper back massage. Is that how you would describe it? I think we're just going to let the audience sort that out on their own. Uh, one thing I thought it was funny. I, the the I think that cl- that clip was pretty inspired. Did you recognize Kitty where that music came no. from? Where? All right, I, I, I remembered right away. So Danko, if we could see the clip that they stole this from. Oh my God, Here we, we go. can see how we're doing this week, yeah. This is from a very Brady sequel. I'm just glad so mom and dad didn't invite Roy to stay up here. It's crowded enough as it is. Look, Greg, I'm not any happier about this than you are, but we're just gonna have to make the best of it. I can't believe I have to share my far out pad with my sister. Are they actually not by a lot? I don't remember. They're like non. No, all the not. boys come from the dad and all the girls. Exactly. From the mom? Exactly. Right, so that's related, that's yeah. the title of that scene is we're not really brother and sister. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You knew that song was from there or you. I love that up? movie. So, yeah. Oh, my God. I'd never seen it, actually. You never seen the the uh, the John Waters Brady Bunch movies? That's by John Waters. Oh, both I of them are. Them. Yeah, yeah. No, they're hilarious. They're yeah. they're deeply. Can we get him on the show? Deeply fucked up and twisted movies, uh, but I love them. Um, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Let's get yeah, John for... Waters on. Would love to have him on. So, uh, what do we have for the food, four food groups this week? I think you start, right? It's right. Uh, yeah, Democrats with uh, Democrats suck. Um, let's see. So we got gotta take you down to the Cuomo files. I don't know what the hell I just said. So this is a really cool segment because um, you know. Andrew Cuomo almost always gets a pass from his brother, um, Fredo Cuomo. Well, his name really is Chris Cuomo, but let's call him Chris Fredo Cuomo. Um, so this is a rare occasion where CNN actually is is uh, critical of Andrew Cuomo. And I think Jake Tapper really nails it. Let's go to the videotape. New York's Democratic governor, Andrew Cuomo, seems to be on something of a victory tour, congratulating the state and himself for defeating the virus, even selling this poster, which shows his state getting over the mountain by bringing down the curve during the 111 days of hell, as the governor put it. The poster includes references to his daughters and a boyfriend, little inside jokes. There are no illustrations, however, of the more than 32,000 dead New Yorkers (laughs) the highest death toll by far of any state. No rendering on that poster of criticism that Governor Cuomo ignored warnings, no depiction of the study that he could have saved thousands of lives had he and Mayor de Blasio acted sooner. No painting there on the poster of his since rescinded order that nursing homes take all infected patients in. Here's what Governor Cuomo had to say yesterday. 
what we went through and what we did was historic because we did tame the beast we did turn the corner we did plateau that mountain and then we came down the other side and they will be talking about what we did for decades to come oh my god i like the commentary from jake tapper i like the way he said he's not showing you know not selling posters of the thirty-two thousand dead new yorkers oh and i mean I that's, like a, that, that's like a mount everest of petty right there it's hilarious uh, mount, mount everest i'm telling you you have picked up my my pun talents because the posters show a oh mountain. that's right it's a mountain that's right i'm sorry yeah, yes okay, okay. Yeah. Um, so a few things I want to say the about Grand that. The Grand Canyon of Petty. Yeah. yeah, the Grand Canyon of Petty. I think we uh, need to look at that at that uh, poster. But I also I just got inspired in real time that you know maybe some useful idiots um, fans could try their hand at what a poster acknowledging the thirty two thousand deaths would look like. Yeah, it would have to be like a Hieronymus Bosch kind of a thing. Yeah, just people. Well, just... I don't. I don't know, Matt. Well, let's not tell them what it has to be. Oh, right. Okay. Because we, we don't want to spoil the creative process. We don't yeah, want to. Yeah, exactly. Right. I see. Yeah. No, absolutely. We should, we should see uh, if, if you've got an idea for what, what, what the mountain of uh, death, death should actually look like. Right. Yeah. So I love this. It's, it's CNN on CNN crime. Uh, I've, I've been kind of rough on Jake Tapper over the last couple of years, especially on the Russia Gate stuff. But a couple of things I have to give him credit for. One thing is that, uh, when you ask him a question, like you reach out to him, he'll actually answer. Uh, he, he, he will defend himself, unlike, or, or he'll ex provide explanations, unlike a lot of people in media. And he, I think he's accountable in that way, which is interesting. But this, this is a really interesting thing to do um, <laughs> publicly. I, I just, I'm, wonder, I'm wondering what uh, Fredo thinks of all this. It's, yeah, I know. Uh, he's probably yeah. going to threaten Jake. Right. There's going to be some kind of I, I would love to see the Slack channel on this one. I wonder who has yeah. axe emojis next to next to his yeah. or her name on this one. So, yeah, very, very cool. Uh, yeah. We love it. We love it. We, love to see yeah. more of it. We've said this before. Cuomo gets credit. Uh, he's an austerity governor. He's a fiscally conservative governor and he gets credit as this liberal savior. I think merely because, well, he's done, he's tried to position himself that way and uh, he's just not. But he knows how to work PR and optics. Um, and he has the uh, advantage of not being Donald Trump. So right. if you don't suggest putting using bleach to cure um, COVID, you get taken very seriously. And he is very like reason based. Um, he's not always that honest, but everything he nothing he says is like on its face ridiculous the way that Trump does. And I think people find him re really reassuring, even though maybe they shouldn't, given um, his failures. Yeah, he's going to try to pitch himself as the Giuliani of the. Of, of covid but it's not gonna it's not gonna translate because our cultural memory doesn't last that long anymore right. that was well, like 19, 19 crises ago so well what's uh, interesting is i feel like he's trying to pitch himself as a giuliani on covid but also as i don't know insert socially liberal person um politician more generally right yeah exactly um, so again as jake tapper mentions um andrew cuomo is offering or selling these posters that show him kind of, I guess, going up the mountain and coming down the on the other side when it comes to COVID. So this poster is called um, New York Tough, Smart United, Disciplined, Loving. He's really quite literal on this, or the artist is quite literal on this. Um, on the top, we have a mask and it says mask up. We have people standing six feet away from each other. 
Uh, we have a, on the, uh, this is one of my favorites. There's just a, an image of a, a nose. Yes. Kind of cut off, you know, a, a floating nose with the um, cotton, the Q-tip uh, in it. The swab. Um, the swab, thank you, which is testing tracing. For me, I'm getting vibes from multiple, this is a little bit magical mystery tour uh, meets Princes Around the World in a Day album meets like, uh, Gulliver's map of Lilliput meets Hieronymus Bosch, maybe? I don't know. Like, I'm trying to figure out what the artistic inspiration of right, this picture what the, is. Right, the, the, the artistic influences? It's like a Thomas Friedman metaphor. It, it doesn't actually make things clearer for you. <laughs> you right. know, it, it actually complicates the situation. But it's, I, I would put this on my wall if it meant anything positive. But I, I, I love the idea that somebody probably came to him with this and said, so what do you think? Right. Said, yeah, I love it. You know, should we move on to uh, Republican suck? I thought it was appropriate this week to talk about the do a little requiem for the end of the career of Jeff Sessions, who was bounced out in a primary <laughs> by uh, in a Republican primary in uh, in, in Mississippi by uh, Tommy Tuberville, who is of course one of your favorite people, uh, Katie. Right. Ever since the, the, he guided Auburn to a 13-0 season in 2004. I mean, it's like I can't believe that we get to talk about him because I just wanted an excuse to talk about him. As I mean, who can forget athlete. that year, right? They had Jason Campbell. They had Ronnie Brown. They had Carnell Williams. And that team was stacked, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Brick house stacked. <laughs> so Jeff Sessions. Jeff Beauregard. Beauregard Sessions. Sessions. We have to give him his unique place in history because he both helped destroy the the regular Republican Party, the the pre-Trump Republican Party, and he helped destroy Trump. Uh, and so he has a unique place in American mm -hmm. history. So we let's go back and remember that Sessions, along with another person who met a similar political fate to him, Chris Chris Christie, uh, was one of the first mainstream politicians to jump on board with Trump. Unlike unlike Christie, who thought he was going to get the VP nomination, uh, Sessions actually did get the big job and ended up as attorney general. And then immediately, basically, helps to destroy Trump's presidency very early on by recusing himself in the, in, in the Russia investigation. It, and I think you'll, people will look back at that and realize that that was a major moment in the history of Trump's presidency. Not that it wouldn't have been terrible anyway, but um, it sort of allowed a whole series of events to, to take place after that. Trump never forgives him. And Sessions, rather than trying to reclaim some kind of independent political identity apart from Trump, spends the next years trying to get back in Trump's good graces and fails. And this is funny on like 19 different levels. Uh, when the, the New York Times wrote about um, Sessions' loss this week, they had a couple of really, really funny paragraphs. I, I might have said Mississippi earlier, but by mistake, I meant Alabama. Uh, Sessions is from Alabama. Dan, if we could see the article that the New York Times wrote here. For Sessions, no amount of campaigning could overcome Trump. So in that article, uh, the Times, the Times write a, writes a couple of things. It says, Mr. Sessions always seemed to believe that the shared political ideas that brought them together in the first place, Mr. Sessions was the first senator to endorse Mr. Trump in February 2016, would eventually heal the rift caused by the recusal. Uh, so 
the idea that Sessions actually thought that there was some kind of ideological uh, connection with Donald Trump, that anything other than Donald Trump personally matters to Donald Trump, is kind of hilarious that this is somebody who spent that much time around him didn't recognize this. Right. But isn't uh, he kind of saying he thought the loyalty, the built-in loyalty of his endorsing him first, is it ideological or is it personal? No, he, Mr. Sessions always seemed to believe that the shared political ideas that brought them together in the first place uh, yeah. w- would eventually heal the rift caused by the re- refusal. Right. Yeah. yeah. And of course it doesn't, right? So yeah. S- Sessions tries to run as the Trumpier of the two candidates and here's another hilarious passage in, um, in the Times article. It says, in April, after Mr. Sessions mentioned the president 22 times in a campaign mailer, Mr. Trump's campaign sent a letter to the candidate calling his self-promotion as Mr. Trump's biggest supporter, quote, delusional. So, so this is, again, it's, it's, a, it's a contest to see who's more, the more craven and pathetic between right. Trump, uh, between Sessions and Chris Christie, who... Uh, Right up until the last minute, um, was, they kept offering him worse and worse jobs during the right. transition. If you remember, there was a moment when I think uh, the Trump was even hinting that they were going to give him the ambassadorship to Vatican City or something. Oh uh, and but at the end, they they offered him. It was like uh, the Godfather, you know, Senator. My offer to you is this: nothing. They they get, they offered him nothing. So Sessions keeps thinking he's going to get back in Trump's good graces. Keeps trying to campaign as as the Trumpy candidate. Uh, Trump actively interferes, knocks him down. And it's just, I think the whole episode is hilarious. I mean, I feel like Sessions showed a weakness that Trump can just sense and really doesn't like. Although I also feel like there's no way of winning back Trump's affection after you do something, a certain thing. Unless of course you, not. Right? But the, I think, you know, the historical significance of Sessions is that he, he did help kind of legitimize Trump to begin with. And, you know, and then help uh, destroy Trump from within. So I, I, I don't know. Right. I don't know how we assess his career ultimately in the end, but uh, it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. I mean, it's he's a it, cuck. He is. He is kind of a cuck, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Do we ever think we were actually going to use that word? Probably. No. Do, have we I used that word? Ho- I was really hoping we could get the opportunity. I know I've talked about beta and alpha and how, how uh, Cuomo always out alphas de Blasio, but maybe not. Maybe this is a first. So this is a, this is our death of a cuck segment yeah um yeah death, death by a thousand cucks death by a thousand cucks i love it uh so what do we have for isn't that weird so you know a couple episodes ago um i i, is, I is really this more penis content yeah it is more penis content you know it was such a pleasure watching i've never made matt laugh harder than i did with the porning america segment or this um trinity of penis stories uh, and it's just like it's it's really entertaining. It's more for me. It's more way more entertaining than the actual content is watching Matt's responses <laughs> to that. Not to create no no pressure or anything, but but yeah, let's start with this video about something that happened. A very um, very troubling story. Yeah. So let's just go to the video tape. Caution, this next story is about is about a man who was arrested for displaying a wooden statue of a man's private parts. You might want to look away if you think you might find the content offensive. The arrest happened in Wilton, and Mark Mulholland brings us the story live from our Saratoga newsroom. And Mark, this is an unusual one. 
It certainly is, Jerry and Jackie. Police and prosecutors say <laughs> Jamie Gagne's wooden sculpture violates decency laws. Gagne says forcing him to take it down and arresting him violates his constitutional rights. Now, we're blurring out a portion of the seven-foot pine structure, but you get the idea. Jamie Gagne used a chainsaw to carve a penis and placed it on the front lawn of his Ruggles Road home. He put it there nine days ago as an act of protest against the town of Wilton and a neighbor. The neighbor had been complaining to the town about noise coming from the construction of Gagne's workshop and the town ordered him to stop work on the workshop and revoked his permit. Gagne says people immediately started laughing and taking pictures of it. Shortly after it was up, he got a visit from a state trooper who told him he'd gotten a couple of calls but no official complaints. So he was a little surprised yesterday when two troopers showed up and told him the carving would have to come down and he'd have to go with them. He used a forklift and took it down as they waited, and then they charged him with public display of what? offensive sexual material. Just so viewers, uh, any, uh, what should we describe for listeners only? I mean, there is a big so the, wooden uh, penis. Yeah, and they blurred out the glands. They blurred it out, so you can't yeah. see it. Yeah, they blurred right. up. They blurred the glands. Oh my god, it's so I can't believe how disgusting that word is in this context. And, <laughs> glands. And the, say it again. Oh my god, so bad. <laughs> say and glands. The, and the tip. And the tip. Just the tip. Just the tip. They only blurred out just the tip of the penis and then the testes. So first of all, Gagne, please come on the show. We want Absolutely. to have you on the show. But this is really fucked up. And it says adults only on his on his workshop thing. I mean, he gives a fair warning, although you probably see the penis outside before you see that. But um, we really want to have you on the show because this is just the tip of uh, civil liberties violations. I mean, it's absurd. I mean, first of all, what could be more American than responding to your busybody neighbor who doesn't like your chainsaw sounds than With, than making a gigantic wooden penis and point so and great. aiming it? It's it's, uh, it's so great. I mean, this is this is a, a neighbor on neighbor conflict that's spun way out of control. But it's right. uh, it's hilarious. And then, of course, the 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 Bafo ridiculous ending is the arrest. Yeah. Ma making it a million times worse in like all directions, right? He's going to uh, become all directions. Yes. He's going to become a hero, I think, like a free speech civil rights hero. He's going to get he's going to get a massive book deal and he's going to build a 59 story uh, penis on that property. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, to, so we'll blot the sun out of the neighbor's uh, yard. I that mean, you can enter with an elevator. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> What floor, sir? Yeah, I think that would be great. They basically forced this man to cut off his own penis, first of all. Well, okay, look. Let's say the neighbor has kids. Yes. I mean, I, 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 I can see being a little upset at having somebody build a gigantic erect wooden penis um, outside. I mean, I, I don't know. It's a tough one. That's a tough legal question. Of course it's a free speech thing. Of course he has the right to do it. Yes, he does, but uh, it's kind of a dick move too. But it's funny. I mean, I'm, I, the, I'm, I'm torn. You know, they the troopers handcuffed him and charged him with a public display of offensive sexual material. The, the DA said this is trying to protect the issue of potential exploitation in a sexual manner, particularly as it relates to protecting children. So this is somehow like sexual abuse of kids. Uh, to which Gagne rightly replied, it's just a giant piece of wood. You think about going to a park and there's a statue of a little boy peeing or there's a marble statue of a bare-breasted woman. That is hysterical. 
I mean, if you went to a park and there, and there was a statue of a little boy with a seven foot boner peeing, right. that might be, you might have a little bit of a different opinion about yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, fantastic. I love that story. Yeah. It's so a great Jamie, story. come on the show. Uh, okay. For, uh, isn't that terrible? I, mine is su- super short. It's just gross feet. A Chinese firefighter. Uh, apparently was doing a lot of work and took a picture of his feet, and put it on the internet and everybody circled it all around, circulated around the world because it was so disgusting. So we're going to show you that picture because that's what this segment is all about. Oh my God. Wait, can you, Oh my God. What? So here's fuck? a New York post uh, story. Overworked firefighters, disgusting feet go viral online. And then if we could look at the uh, supersized p- version of this picture and they're disgusting feet, right? They look like dead, like look like dead man's feet. I've yeah. never seen those, but that's what I imagine it to look like. It looks like they have mold on them too, like fungus on the top. They're a very white color, almost like a porcine pink color. Would you eat lime jello off of those feet? I mean, for how much money? <laughs> yeah, that's not good. Obviously, that's, that's a, like that's the only. Yeah, I mean, for how okay. much money? Well, how much money would it take for you? It, is there a health risk or is it just an ick factor? Uh, no, there's definitely a health risk. Let's make it something even grosser than Jello. Let's let's make it let's make it butterscotch pudding. Oh, that's great! I'd prefer that. You prefer you prefer yeah, that? I like yeah, but it's pudding. but it's it'd be much harder to separate it from the feet. Oh, I, I see. Right. right? Uh, um, okay. How much would it take? Like four spoonfuls. If it was non-fatal, if I could yeah. be guaranteed it wouldn't kill me. Uh huh. Ten thousand dollars. Ten thousand dollars. Okay, that's low right. or high for you? Uh, no, that's about that's about what I would have. Exp- I mean, I would obviously do it for lower, but <laughs> but that's about right. Those are really gross feet. Uh, I just wanted to ask you that because that's this is the kind of conversation that that basically men have throughout their entire college careers, as opposed to studying. Right. Like, how much money would it take for you to? Right. Yeah. Well, to be fair, I'm the. What were you? You didn't even bring up money. You just asked me if I would. Right. Yes, exactly. All right. So that's all I got. That's all I got for isn't that terrible. It's really not that terrible. It's just gross. Right. So let's talk about some stuff. A lot, yeah. a lot of things went on and I know people are going to be, some people are going to be annoyed because there's lots of super important things going on in the world. Right. Uh, and like violations that, of free speech and penis removal. Mm-hmm. Well, that clearly at the top, right. Then pandemic Right. <laughs> and national racism protests, all, right. all those other things. Um, but we're going to focus on, um, you know, sort of intramural, petty media uh, grievances. Look, there's been, for the last month and a half or so, the media business has been in a state of complete upheaval and insanity. And for people who don't work in this uh, in this field, it probably means less to you than, than it does uh, to us. But uh, this stuff is... You know, in the history of this business, I can't remember a time when there's been more craziness going on internally in the the media business. Can you? Well, I didn't live through the McCarthy era. Right. Um, And I'm not making light of that at all. But um, I think that it also is related to um, online culture. And actually, so I think that this is interesting, whether it should be. This is interesting to people who are not just in the media. I think a lot of people find these stories like engaging or, or even if they don't admit it, but they, you know, for various right. reasons. But so we next, should, we should, yeah. yeah. So we should set the stage just, just to explain what happened this week. Yeah. The, the, the big uh, news this week was that New York Times writer slash editor Barry Weiss resigned 
and in a public resignation letter that was um, pretty accusatory towards her former bosses, uh, accused them of a hostile work environment, among other things. Uh, and then Andrew Sullivan also resigned from New York Magazine. And uh, this is at the end of a series of events dating back probably, what, five weeks, when, which probably, go, probably beginning with the firing of James Bennett at the New York Times, um, when he was, and this is something you and I argued about uh, yeah. a little bit, uh, for running the Tom Cotton editorial. Barry Weiss at that time tweeted a bunch of stuff that made a lot of people in the industry mad because he talked about this rift between older and younger media people. Then uh, there have been a series of other incidents of varying degrees of silliness, some of which we're going to talk about with our guests today, yeah. Thomas Chatter and Williams, including uh, lots of nuttiness at places like The Intercept and Vox. There, was, there have been lots of crazy things in terms of uh, cross accusations, people claiming that uh, you know, things that people have uh, done on staff have made them feel unsafe, calls for people to be fired, et cetera, et cetera. And the, basically the center of this controversy is um, a question of whether there is, whether the media business has become too politicized and too homogenous or whether it's just a bunch of people who are oversensitive and can't take heat. And, and this is a good thing actually in the end. So I, you know, I, I have a take on this, but I'd, lo I'd love to hear what you think first, Katie. I mean, this also goes back to earlier discussions about, you know, Brett Ste Stevens and the appropriateness of his hire. Uh, same thing with Barry Weiss. And uh, it's in Glenn Greenwald has written about Barry Weiss a bunch. And he first we picked on Barry on this show a couple. Yeah, times. Yeah, on this very show. Yeah, because she um, called, she called Tulsi, someone a toady. Called Tulsi Gabbard a an Assad, an toady. Or an and didn't, and didn't know what toady and didn't know what that meant and she also didn't really know how to pronounce it and so joe rogan was like what do you mean what does that mean and she's like i think it means what uh can you look it up and in all fairness to her she had the humility slash there was no other way to get around it to ask the person there to look it up and then they learned about what it meant um a sycophant basically i believe uh is how she then described it not totally accurately anyway so she she smeared Tulsi Gabbard and, and didn't even have the, t the dishonest talking points to back it up. Uh, and then she also, I mean, she's free to do this, but she, she compared Jews who support BDS to Jews who in the olden days would reverse their circumcisions. And Glenn Greenwald wrote a piece about how her hire and the hire of Brett Stevens was really um, a problem and, and that it was, you know, done under the guise of diversity and ideological diversity. But for, for Greenwald, and certainly I see it this way too, it was really just kind of a doubling down on the pro-Israel uh, tendencies of the New York Times and the total absence of any voices that are critical of Israel at all. Right. Um, and then on top of that, and Glenn wrote another piece on this, when she was hot, um, when she was criticized, because what makes this kind of ironic, um, and I think you and I probably have maybe not that different takes on, on the what should be done about this, but what makes Barry Weiss kind of presenting herself as a victim of um, censorship or mob mentality kind of uh, ironic and problematic is that she herself, when she was a student at Columbia University, really um, did a lot to smear um, 
certain professors as anti-Semites, including Joseph Mossad. And uh, there's video of her doing this and talking about how these professors are anti-Semites or made people unsafe. Uh, and they launched an entire investigation into this. And they found, of course, that there was nothing to it. And of course, all of this relates to the Harper's letter, which our guest- Thomas Chatterton Williams. Organized. Right. Uh, and Barry Weiss was one of the signatories. And now, and so this comes on the heels of that mm -hmm. also. And Barry Weiss was one of the signatories. Um, Noam, on the on one hand, we had people like Noam Chomsky, um, Matt Carp, friend of the show or friend of the Katie Helper show, at least historian Matt Carp, Zephyr Teachout. They signed. And then Sean Wilentz, Gloria Steinem, Margaret Atwood. Right. But I think this is an extremely important point to make. There is a total, like, uncommented on, nearly uncommented on, and accepted by many people, censorship, marginalization, firing, intolerance of people who are critical of Israel. And I think that, you know, this, this and this is one of the reasons I think some of the leftist um, critiques of free speech or leftist, like, um, embrace of, of giving Facebook and Twitter and YouTube more power to, to control content is just is so dangerous like forget the ideology just if you look at the consequences and we had Ali Abu Nima on to talk about this the people who are going to be most silenced most censored most you know have their Facebook accounts deactivated are precisely critics of Israel especially if they're Palestinian or Palestinian American or Arab or Arab American so now I don't think that there's a whole other debate about whether that means people should be condemned for signing the letter whether that means the content of the letter is in inherently bad I think the way the left should respond to this is by saying some people on this list are hypocrites. These ideals are important. We should not let the only people saying this be hypocrites like Carrie Nelson. I think it should be like an expansive discussion and we should reclaim it or make the issues not controversial. Um, I think we can look at the hypocrisy of the people who signed it. So there is a whole debate about that. And... There's a lot more to say about this case and the David Shore case, um, but I want to give you the chance to speak. Yeah, so the, the, to me, the, there's two different things going on here. One is the the free speech letter and, and the whole issue of whether or not Barry was a hip hypocrite and all that. But the, the immediate issue, I think, of this week, which is um, a little different for me, is the whole question of what's going on intellectual diversity-wise at major media, right? So... I have a take on this that uh, I've actually written a lot about in the past. So you have to start with a, a baseline admission about how the, the commercial media is structured. Basically, by all statistical measures, uh, media companies are overwhelmingly, at the reporter level, overwhelmingly staffed by people who lean uh, to the left. Like if you if you look at the voting statistics, it's something always like nine to one uh, in terms of like Democrats to Republicans. Really quickly, I would just say that I think there's an important distinction between it's largely the left and we can get into this later. But I do think there's a distinction between left and liberal. Right. OK, I understand that. So this has been so you can take any statistic you want to. There was another study that showed that in 2016, 96 percent of all uh political contributions that were made by journalists went to Clinton, right? So you, forgetting about what your feelings are about that, um, 
it's it's basically true. So this has always been the basis of the conservative argument that the media is biased in favor of liberals. What they always what that argument always forgets is that it ignores who owns the companies, right? The, the companies themselves are te- are usually nihilistic, corporate, and conservative, and press you know militaristic uh, issues, et cetera, et cetera. But the individual reporters and voices at a lot of these companies do heavily sort of lean in one direction. And it's been true forever. And uh, going back to 1972, there was a famous quote, I think it was a movie critic from the New York Times, Pauline Kael, I think it was her name. And she talked about how um, she couldn't believe that Nixon won because she didn't know anybody who voted for him, right? And why does that matter? It, it, it really doesn't necessarily, until you get to a situation like 2016, when a major newspaper like the New York Times completely misses a massive news event because they're so completely removed from what the rest of the country is thinking that they just can't, they can't envision that certain things are possible and it colors their ability to, to factually cover things correctly, right? So by news, sorry, by news event, you mean? Donald Trump getting elected. Okay, so they don't pre- they don't cover. You don't mean they don't cover it. You mean like they don't predict. They got it wrong. The stuff that's happening. Right, right, yeah. Right. So the, 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 not not just the New York Times, but basically the entire yeah, I mean, right. the entire news industry completely missed this event. They didn't believe that Trump was actually going to win the nomination, despite every uh, piece of data indicating that he was going to. Um, the, there was a huge collapse in data journalism as well, because the, and, and some of them admitted this, that they started acting like pundits and less like, uh, data reporters. And, and so they, they didn't see it as well. They didn't see the sort of enthusiasm gap that was out there. They don't, they don't know people who think differently. And that becomes a major problem when you're trying to report on something. And so, so in, in the wake of 2016, and this gets to how Barry Weiss ends up at the times, there is a little bit of a crisis of confidence at the times, like, oh my God, how are we gonna go forward if, we, if, we're, not, if, we're, if we're so completely out of touch with what the rest of the country is thinking? Right. We have to bring in some other voices, right? And, th- and this is the thinking behind bringing in Brett Stevens and Barry Weiss. But of course, what they do, because they, they've already phased out basically every other kind, and, and the, the op-ed pages were, there was a weird thing that went on with the media, which is that they, they um, were all white guys, right? Uh, but what they've become progressively less intellectually diverse as well as racially diverse over the years. Like there was a time when um, you, there was always a columnist who was kind of a working class voice, like a Herb Cain or, or Jimmy Breslin, right. um, you know, or Mike Barnacle in Boston. Those people all basically disappeared in the last couple of decades. They've been replaced by upper class, professional class types. The humorist is gone. The, the pseudo intellectual like columnist who wrote about grammar and, and right. literature, that person is gone. They've, they've, the op-ed page has become this place where it's basically just narrow wooden hot takes. And so when the, when the, I have to take that down, Matt, I am the narrow wooden. Oh, that's right. Yes. Well, yeah, exactly. Maybe not narrow, narrow, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. So when they, when they, when they decide to bring in Barry Weiss and, and Brett Stevens, this is the New York times, like, and they're doing this in the, in the middle of, 
uh, basically announcing that they see their role as actively opposing Donald Trump. It's it's it was always phony diversity, right? It was they 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 were not bringing in somebody. They were they were just doing it to satisfy some kind of external complaint that that somebody had leveled at them for being out of touch. So they bring in their idea of a conservative, right? And a lot of times when they when when organizations do this, they kind of self sabotage. They don't bring in the best thinkers. They don't they they bring in obvious dopes like Stevens, right? Uh, and and they also they, they're never they, they're never from other walks of life. In other words, the they always bring in someone who meets all the other typical New York Times cultural markers, right? Like Ivy League education, you know, the awards from the proper places, right? Categories, um, good pro- 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 professional class upbringing, clips from the right organizations. So, so when somebody like Barry Weiss gets hired, they are actually basically just token. They're, they're tokens. They're political tokens, and they probably are really treated like shit. Now, that's not a. Re- I don't particularly love. Uh, Barry Weiss's work, we picked on her quite a lot here. I think that she's, we're probably on the opposite side of a lot of issues. So there's never a real effort to diversify the thinking that they don't have other kinds of thinkers on these pages, right? There, there isn't a, there isn't even a Bernie person on these pages. They don't have a, like a, a cynic who doesn't like either party. There, there isn't just a humorist. There isn't a person who's a, who is deeply religious in some odd way, right? They, they, their, their idea of diversity is a bunch of uh, Democrats and maybe a couple of Republicans. And so it's always phony diversity. And when they bring in, you know, somebody like these, these people, it makes total sense that they're going to end up being um, outcasts in the organization because there isn't any. All I'm trying, all I'm trying to say is, is that the ultimate loser, when you end up with a situation where there's where you you don't have any representation of other kinds of thinking on the op-ed page and forget about whether it's Barry Weiss or Brett Stevens or whoever. If, if basically your op-ed page is a whole bunch of people who agree with each other and Ross Douthat, right? The loser there is the rest of the staff and the readers of the New York Times. I mean, like you're, you're going to end up getting a picture of the world that's incomplete and the, the paper is going to suck because it, it's not going to be able to see what the rest of the country is thinking. They've already proven that that's the case. I understand that people hate Barry Weiss and they hate Brett Stevens. And, and I think in those cases that part, part of the, re- the reason that I'm talking about this is that I don't think that, I think they often don't bring in uh, the best representatives of, you know, the other kind of thinking. Like Andrew Sullivan to me is a very good writer. I disagree with him about a lot of things. Uh, I think he's, he's, um, uh, even when I disagree with them, I always think he's interesting. Same thing with people like William Sapphire, you know, Buckley, right? Once upon a yeah. time, but those those people are disappearing, and I think that's a bad thing. That's all I want. And, and 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 if and if going forward, you know, the the commercial news media doesn't have those kinds of voices, I think it's bad. They, you said something like they're all they're white. There are all these white men who are, you know, the head of media, but. And you, but you said that like, there's increasing, but there's decreasing ideological diversity, right? Well, right, that. but they, so, so they're only just now beginning to diversify racially in a way that's right. appropriate. Right, okay. right, yes. But Agreed. even before yeah. they started doing that, they started phasing out other kinds of, they, they were phasing out other kinds of thinkers, right? Right. Um, 
So the, the, the op-ed page was, was already, before they started to racially diversify, they were already winnowing it down and making it a duller place. And so now, yes, they're, they're, they're diversifying and that's overdue and that's, that's absolutely necessary, but they're diversifying in a way that's uh, only in one way. They're not bringing in other kinds of thinkers as well. Yeah, they're diversifying, which is, as you said, much overdue. Um, the um, representation of racial, ethnic, gender, uh, gender identity uh, stuff, and that's not—I'm not dissing that at all. But that is a diversification, an increasing diversity that has not been accompanied by the matching ideological diversity. Right. Or so a they match a comparable. Yeah. Like if you take if you take a situation where somebody like Andrew Sullivan. He- at the New York Magazine, and Sullivan's a really good writer. And you know, there was a quote from Sullivan's editor that I found really amazing when when he left. Here's New York New York Magazine editor David Haskell. He says, "I will I will continue to publish work that challenge. I will continue to publish work that challenges the liberal assumptions of much of our readership. But publishing conservative commentary or critiques of liberalism in the left in 2020 is difficult to get right." and thoughtful, meaning people can come to different conclusions about it. So I guess what I would say to that is, if Andrew Sullivan isn't good enough to do that job, and, and, and it's so difficult to get right that you can't even have room for Andrew Sullivan, who's actually good at it, then, then there's a serious problem in the industry. You know? And I think what he's yes. talking about saying, when he's, when he's talking about it being difficult to get right, I don't think he's saying that, that Andrew Sullivan is ineloquently expressing his point of view, I think it's more that it's become difficult internally to have people like Andrew Sullivan on staff. And that's, that's not a good thing. I do want to go to the point of um, left versus liberal, because I really think this is an important distinction. And it's not because I'm part of one and not the other. There is a liberal consensus, basically. And then you have like Ross, I never know how to pronounce yeah, his name. Doubt had, or D- doubt had, yeah, Douthat, yeah, yeah. Um, and Brett Stevens and um, Barry Weiss. Now, none of those people are Trumpists. Right. So, I mean, as you said, that's there. It's like so on brand for The New York Times, which missed the rise of Trump to then hire people who are not Trump supporters, don't shed any insight, any light onto why people vote for Trump. But I also do think it's really important to distinguish not in a I'm not doing this in like a scolding way or like an or like righteous or prideful way that I'm a leftist, not a lib, but you acknowledged yourself, right? That like, there are, sure, there, the similarity is probably that in the general election, libs and leftists voted for Clinton over Trump. Right. But there is a total absence of like Bernie people. Yeah, there, or- There was in 2016 and 2020, or people like, yeah, third party people, people who are, you know, dismiss, like reject, um, Greens, whatever. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I think and that's why I do think it's important to distinguish between left and liberal. Yeah, no, I I get completely what you're saying. But that's actually part of my point is that when you have when when it's fake diversity to begin with, first, first of all, that's phony. Second of all, um, the the reason you want to have real intellectual diversity is because when you have a monoculture, that's exactly when you start to miss things right. because you need somebody uh, who's coming from another point of view to point out your bullshit. I think people, when they look at this, they're so focused on, I hate Barry Weiss and I hate Brett Stevens and I wish they would go away. And 
uh, and they don't realize that actually what you want is more people who disagree with you because the, the loser in the end is both the news organization and the reader when you, when you, when you have a progressively narrower group of opinions. And I get that people hate uh, Barry Weiss. I get that they hate Brett Stevens. I, I can't say that I've ever really read a column by either that I really liked, uh, but you're, you're going from a, an organization that was already incredibly narrow on the, on the intellectual diversity front and has now become narrower. And that's, I, I don't see how that's a good thing for anybody. You know. I, I also want to say that we should have, I'm talking to you, Barry Weiss. If you want to come on, we'll have you and Joseph Massad and Stephen Salaita and Carrie Nelson, because I am committed to free and open debate. Okay, great. Yeah, Let's do it. absolutely. And, and some other toadies, if we can find them. So that was a great discussion. Such, so I like the way we have different opinions on that. We do. It's we do, yeah. exchange. In line with all of this discussion, uh, lucky us, we have uh, Thomas Chatterton Williams uh, yeah. on, and uh, who is in the middle of this. He's, yeah. he's literally sitting at ground zero of, of, the this, of, of, the, of this whole controversy. You can follow him, by the way, on Twitter at Thomas Chatwell. That's Thomas, C-H-A-T-T-W-I-L-L. Uh, he is a contributing writer at New York Times Magazine. He's a columnist at Harper's, and he is the author of Self-Portrait in Black and White. Welcome to Useful Idiots, Thomas Chatterton-Williams. I've been wanting to have you on for a while, yeah. uh, but it, it, it's incredibly apropos this week. Uh, you're in the middle of this massive thing. Did you, before we even get to what it is, did you ever think that it would turn into something uh, on this scale? No. <laughs> As you know, like, something that I always think about is, like, Juno Diaz 10 years ago or 15 years ago saying, like, I'm not famous. Like, writers aren't famous, you know? Like, uh, no one knows who Jonathan Franzen is when he walks down the street. But actually, like, there are a few writers who are actually really famous. And I think that the rest of us who are writers didn't fully appreciate what like kind of fame, like someone like J.K. Uh, Rowling brings to signing mm -hmm. her name on something. It's just it's beyond anything that we experience. So, and then when you add a few others like Salman Rushdie, who's really famous, you add people like that into the mix. I, the 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 letter it, it went way. Be we were talking amongst ourselves like if we could have like people's attention for one to three days, um, that would be a massive victory beyond what we could you know hope for. You know. Right, right. So for, for listeners and people in the audience who don't know what we're talking about, uh, this is about a, a group letter that was published in Harper's last Tuesday. And uh, essentially, it, it was, you know, it was a statement in favor of free speech. I mean, it, the, the term isn't in the letter, but it's been characterized as a statement against cancel culture. And almost immediately, there was this massive response to it. And it had, as you mentioned, some very famous people signing uh there were how many signatories 153 153 at first yeah, yeah. And now how many have dropped how many i think we're at 151 i'm, oh, I'm pretty sure we're two. just okay. at 151 you know so can you tell us what what was the genesis of this idea because this was this was among you were one of the people who put it together basically yeah mm -hmm. uh but i wasn't alone it's it's um something that you know i was talking about um this with George Packer, with Mark Lilla, with uh, Robert Worth, and with David Greenberg. 
um, it's kind of an ongoing conversation that I've had with Mark and George for, for a long time. Um, this idea that like the realm of what's acceptable or <clears throat> not even acceptable because people always would say like, yeah, but racism used to be acceptable. That's not what we're talking about. It's like the realm of like what won't get you punished is like constantly constricting. And um, the idea that like, you know, Twitter kind of has an outsized influence now on um, not just our media and cultural institutions, but like our corporate spaces and just like all aspects of our life that like a, a mob can be whipped up and kind of decide that you must be made an example of. And um, the people that might be able to be like a barrier between you and the mob oftentimes are capitulating to the mob because it's just too much inconvenience or trouble or, or something to, to, to figure out what's right or what's wrong or to, to suss out what's the complexities of the situation. And so we've been talking about this for a while. And then, you know, it felt like this spring, a lot of things had ratcheted up. And five, six weeks ago, we started um, thinking about a, an open letter and drafting some things. And then we were concerned that, you know, is the timing, like, is it going to be really, like, willfully misinterpreted as, like, being some sort of reaction to, like, the very real conversations that we're very happy to be having about um, the extraordinary brutality that um, comes out of American policing, for example. We don't want it to be seen like we're trying to be interfering with conversations that need to happen. But what we are talking about is like things that seem to be not only inexplicable, but indefensible, like what happened to David Shore, which I'm sure you're aware of, you know, yeah. these kind of overreaches, these overcorrections when there are real wrongs, but then there are these overcorrections that make a, 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 just a stifling atmosphere. And we felt, you know, like it's not a good time to do an open letter like this now because people will misconstrue it. But there's no good time to do an open letter like this now. So we have to we have to do it at some point. We did talk about the David Shore incident, but I thought it would be interesting to hear it just from your perspective, like sure. how it unfolded and how you heard about it. And we had Omar Wasau on, by the way, whose work, of course, was cited by Shore. Whose work was the, yeah, was the thing you're not supposed to. Precipitating. Right. Yeah. David Shore was a young data analyst uh, at Civis. Am I pronouncing that right? I think so. I think Analytic. so, yeah. Um, a, a, like a data company, and he 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 simply retweeted without adding commentary um, research that Omar Wasau had done. Uh, Omar Wasau is an academic at Princeton University. This was research that was peer reviewed and was not considered um, beyond the pale by any means. It was research about the efficacy of violent or nonviolent protesting in an election year. Uh, looking back at what happened um, during the era of President Nixon. And for, for retweeting this, um, this research, he was, um, he was, he was I, I hate this term, but he was canceled. You know, he lost his job. And it's really chilling because the idea behind his cancellation was that it wasn't what he said. It was that there were implications about the research that were um, not welcome at this time, whether they were correct or not correct. And that's what I think a, a lot of us really took that. We tried not to name specific um, incidents as the reason for the letter, but everything that we allude to in the culture, we have at least two or three incidents that, uh, that fit. And we give like five examples of the way the discourse is constricting. And we have like two or three examples that fit each description. But this was something that was very much on my mind. And I think on, on some of the others' minds as we were um, putting together our, our rationale. I actually have, I think that there's some issues, not cancelable issues, but I think like the framing of violent versus nonviolent, and Matt and I have kind of debated this 
is um, is something that can be questioned um, or renegotiated. But I certainly don't think that Wasau should be canceled, nor do I think someone should be canceled for tweeting his research. Um, and I think what you're saying is exactly true. It's like people saw that as a well, he was accused of anti-blackness, of anti-black racism, and and kicked off of David Shore was. David Shore was sorry, David Shore, yeah. But so uh, I think people saw this as a way to blame protesters, um, to discourage certain types of protests, to to chide shame, whatever. And and you can, I think you can argue that. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how much I would agree with you. I think you certainly can argue that something can have an effect that's not necessarily its desired intention. All of that is fair game. But that this guy was just fired, I think is scary. And I just want to like be candid that as a as a kind of leftist and as a white woman, um, I feel and now I feel like I'm being like a woes me reactionary. But like, I feel like I can't talk about that case unless and I do think it's important. But like, I have to ground it in the fact that because he is a white man, David Shore, and it's kind of embarrassing <laughs> that know, I have to say you have, this. You have to talk right yeah. now. Like, I have to, and, and so I have to say, like, Stephen Salaita was fired and lost his job and shouldn't have been. And um, Joseph That's Ma- a preamble. Yeah, and Joseph Massad um, was, you know, per, uh, persecuted for his views and shouldn't have been. And the biggest disenfranchisement and cancellation and firing of people happens to critics of Israel and um, oh, I'm also Jewish, so I should throw that in there. Critics of Israel. This is your preamble. And, yeah. yeah, this is mine, yeah. And I'm just being like, and it's like, no, I think we can hold two ideas in our heads. We can walk and chew gum at the same time and acknowledge that like this guy lost his job because of this. And some people are kind of squishy about this and say like, we don't know what happened, but it's pretty clear that he did. And that there are other examples that don't get attention that should get attention. And it is a principle. And I just think it's kind of, it's very frustrating to me how um, some people, I think some leftists think they're like owning the libs from the left, owning the libs from the left by dismissing any, any firing or any repercussions that are faced by people who aren't the most marginalized or whose story right. isn't the most right. egregious. And I just think that whittles away and undermines the principle. And so, yeah, it is frustrating. Well, could we just define what is what is canceling from your point of view, right? So like, in other words, all the things that Katie talked about, is it ha- does it specifically, does it have to be a threat to your job? Right. Does it have to be, what is it right. exactly? So I think what canceling really is, is, you know, there's a lot of talk about, this is just, the, the cancel culture has always been with us. like. You know, Julius Caesar was canceled by Brutus, and <laughs> well, he was. That's true. Yeah, human beings have always like done certain things, but cancel culture is very specific. Uh, cancel culture has to do with um, a lot of people being whipped up or whipping themselves up to come after a specific target, and not to to disagree with them, to call them names, to be mean to them, but specifically to target that targets employer Hmm. and to demand that a person be driven from the realm of acceptable discourse and not just that person's employer but that no one else shall be contaminated with that person either so it's not just to get somebody from 
the New York Times, uh, if you're trying to cancel Barry Weiss, it's that actually she should not be somebody that can be writing or editing. She's beyond the realm of acceptability. It's to stigmatize somebody, which is what's really, really, it's not to hold someone accountable and then to try to bring them back into the proper discourse. It's to stigmatize them so that they are banished from the realm. And it's to do it with employment specifically. So in the most absurd way this week, on Twitter, I was talking about Barry Weiss and I mentioned just absurdly that a guy was really rude about her. Friend of a friend who was um, a guest in my home was really rude about her and I tried to engage him in a serious way on the subject and it was extraordinarily um, ad hominem and, 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 and kind of just impolite. And so at some point he ended up leaving. I tweeted about it, which is stupid. It's the way that Twitter incentivizes us to break down the line between public and private. Um, I'm still dealing with the, the ramifications of that in my own household. But yeah, that, that one's still smoldering a little bit as we <laughs> speak. Yeah. But that's <laughs> not cancel culture. That is, that, is, that is not me infringing on his free speech. That is, that, is, that is nothing like what we were talking about in the open letter. What we're talking about in the open letter is that I would then target that man's employers. I would then try to make it so that no one else would engage him. I would try to stigmatize him, which I, you know, and I would try to whip up as much support as I possibly could for everybody else to gang up on him. That's what's so kind of terrifying about what Twitter and other forms of social media, the tools that those, those social media give us to, to really do things that are ancient impulses in us that are going back to, you know, I think a lot about Shirley Jackson's short story, The Lottery, mm -hmm. where you know, the townspeople come <laughs> together once a year to stone one person. You know, that's what it really can feel like when you're observing how, certain people are, are, are fair game for things that people don't think is appropriate for any number of other people for a variety of reasons. I think that, uh, well, I guess I asked have a question for you because it seems like there's employment-based cancel culture and then you describe it as kind of making someone, stigmatizing, yeah, and we're making them toxic. And mm -hmm. I've, I mean, I think that we, there's this dual narrative um, of uh, cancel culture doesn't exist but if it were to exist, it's good. Right, um, exactly. And I know that cancel culture exists um, or something. I don't know if we should call it that. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's like guilt by association or toxifying people or something. But like I've had people who I want to invite on my show who I haven't. And not because their ideas are bad, but just because I don't want to be associated with them. And I, I've said this before on Twitter, like I get I have a visceral feeling when it happens. Like I can tell when I'm like being like when it's a peer pressure thing and I'm like thinking with that part of my brain. I don't know what part of my brain that of the brain is. Um, and it's like a gross feeling. And I try to like check it and then, you know, invite the person on. Um, but I think that's like, is that another form of it? Is that like another end of the spectrum? Is that a totally different thing? Um I also actually do think, though, it can't totally be separated because just an example, we've had someone on the show who provoked a big backlash and people were writing to Rolling Stone to have our show canceled, literally like off the, you know, done, not metaphorically canceled, canceled. <laughs> um, real cancellation, real cancel. And if that had been successful, that would have been an employment issue, right? Right. So yeah. I don't know where the, the line You're is. You're talking about something that's very important, which is the point of cancel culture, which is the self-censorship that right. you, um, you don't need to be told. That's why cancel culture is not actually about... A, one criticism of our letter was like, you have big, huge names like Malcolm Gladwell in there. Malcolm Gladwell can't be canceled. Right. That's true. 
That's true. That's actually the point of the letter, isn't it? <laughs> that's the point of the letter. He's actually sticking his neck out or doing something that's generous for on behalf of people that can be canceled. He, Margaret Atwood, lots of people are beyond the point where you can mess up their livelihoods. Right. But what cancel culture is very effective at is like taking someone like David Shore or somebody like that. I'm still cancelable. You maybe not Matt. I don't know, but um, maybe Substack is where you got to go. But you know, if you're employed or if you rely on you know anything other than your own self for your income, you can be cancelled and you're in trouble. And what it does is it makes examples out of certain people so that everybody watching now knows that you're not going near, not just that person, but that type of behavior. And so it, it constricts how you can behave and it's very, very effective. It's so effective that even if I'm being completely honest, there were people that I would have loved to include on the letter who I knew that I couldn't because it would have, it would have sunk the letter even though I don't believe it should have. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? And this was a Absolutely. letter about being brave and standing up to- Right, even and it already, use, sorry. We don't use the term because the right has cynically manipulated the term, and Trump has, 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 has taken advantage of the term and kind of used it as a taunt. But the idea of cancellation um, is so real that this letter couldn't include people that I think it should have included. So, so one of the, the, the criticisms of the letter was, oh, this doesn't happen that often. You know, there's, there's a million more important things to be worried about right now read the room that was there a lot of people were, were saying that right. um but uh isn't what you're talking about the 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 issue it actually affects an enormous number of people and it only takes a relatively small number of examples at, at any institution for this for it to be become a, a very serious problem right or or is there no, is there another way to look at right. it you don't need many people for it to influence the behavior of tens and hundreds of thousands of onlookers. You know, people have social media platforms with hundreds of thousands of followers. One person gets made an example of so many people are watching, you multiply that out. Um, so, I mean, the, the, effects are, the effects are extraordinarily chilling to me. I, it's hard to overstate this. Of course, like, if we were only going to talk about the most serious threats, of course, that's it's kind of a, it's an insane argument. We would only talk about climate change or something, you know, if we were only going to talk about, the, if, we, if you can only talk about the superlative of threats facing you. But this is very real. And like everybody else involved with the letter, as Noam Chomsky even uh, said in an email that was shared on Twitter uh, in the past few days, we all have inboxes flooded with emails and messages from people. And I have Instagram messages I, on every platform I'm on. I, have, I can't even um, read them all. I have so many messages from people who are not famous, as well as from some people that are famous who don't feel they can talk, um, saying, thank you for doing that. If it moves like the needle a little bit, you've done a great service because like in my law firm, I, like I'm not in the media, I'm not a known person, but in my law firm, I can't even say what I really think. What, what do you say to the criticism? And this is something Katie and I talked about, you know, there are people who sign the letter who have kind of engaged in some of this behavior sort of in their, in, in their own pasts. Uh, you, you retweeted a couple of articles that made that point as well. You know, I thought very fairly in the spirit of like trying to debate. debate. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but what's what's the what's the response to that? Uh, I think there are probably a couple of things you could say, but I, I'd be interested to hear. What you're, what you're well, there are a couple. You have of to let him know what's allowed, what's acceptable speech for him to respond <laughs> with. <laughs> First this of is all, a safe space. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> First of all, 
like when did you say the thing that you're being held accountable for now? If it's something that you said in college and you're in your mid to late thirties, um, I'm not sure that I really want to get into a conversation about what people did or didn't do in college. I want to talk about what people do in their professional capacities and the way mm -hmm. that they come to be public figures or whatever. So that's the first thing. So I don't, I'm not, I don't care about what, I don't care that Ibram Kendi um, wrote an op-ed saying that white people might be aliens. I don't care. Um, any of that. I wore velour sweatpants in college. I don't want anybody holding that. Did you really? <laughs> no, I think that's a plus. I think you just, uh, you, your stock just rose. <laughs> but, um, but you know, like also I, I, I want to say that some of the people that might be accused of canceling people uh, on this letter, two things to that, if, if they've been doing it in recent, um, in recent history and in their professional capacity. One is that we wanted to make a statement that uh, defines a set of principles and values that anybody can sign. And it's the, it's the statement that matters, not um, the biography of every signatory. Second of all, um, we wanted to have an enormous enough ideological kind of spectrum of people signing on to these values that matter, which I think we did get, that um, it would be impossible to kind of like familiarize yourself with every single position that every single signatory took and then insulate yourself from any possible criticism that could come your way there. What we wanted to do was kind of, that's why I'm not the author of this. George Packer's not the author of this. Some of us started it and then we, sh we sent it out to get signatories. And some of these signatories are really smart people. And some of the people that declined to sign it are really smart people. A lot of these people gave feedback and we're smart enough to have incorporated their feedback because it made sense. And so over 20 people contributed language to this thing. So this is a document that should really matter on its own outside of who um, says it matters, if that makes you know, yeah. a bit of sense. Well, I just thought the, the, re the response on that front was really interesting because it, it, sp it spoke to how these two groups of uh, these two directions of thought are sometimes speaking past each other, right? Because you were very focused, it seemed to me, on the statement. You thought that the the number of signatories would focus attention on what the statement said, but this other style of thought that's now becoming very prevalent is focused on basically good people and bad people. Let's make let's make categories of of people who are like worthy and worthy of persons and unpersons. And it was suddenly the letter became all about who signed it. Uh, like almost in instantaneously, it became about that, and um, because of a few, because of a few um, signatories in particular, out of right. 153, I would say there were a maximum five, but there's probably more like three that made it that way. But I, but but those two points of view are pretty irreconcilable, aren't they? I mean, like the, the like if if one is sort of asking us like like you know we we should only really be worried about what the statement says. And in fact, probably most of the people who signed don't care at all who else signed it. But there's right. another, another, uh, there's another point of view that thinks that that's extremely important. So how do you bridge that gap? How do you, how do you, how do you talk to people who have that point of view? It's a big difference um, in the value system. I think these are conflict, conflicting visions of what the, the work we're doing really is about. Um, and I, so Malcolm Gladwell, um, tweeted in response to Jennifer Finney Boylan. Both of them are signatories. Jennifer Finney Boylan's position was that as a trans woman, had she known that Rowling and Single, Jesse Single, had signed the letter, 
she would not have signed because she thought it was all good people. And Malcolm right. Gladwell engaged her on that on Twitter and said, that's precisely why I signed, because these are values I believe in. And I knew that there would be many people I don't agree with who would also support these values. And that's important. This is a very serious disagreement on how to see intellectual debate, on how to see um, how to be a public intellectual, how to defend ideas. I come from a, a background where there are good and bad ideas and ideas pass through people and people are kind of always in flux and capable of change as opposed to their fixed natures and good and bad people. I don't think that, that view is um, on the up and up uh, in, in, in the past. It's changed quite a bit in the 10 years that I've been working. I've only been um, in this space for ten, since 2010 professionally. And I would say there's an enormous difference where we are now than when, when I started on, on whether there's good and bad people or good and bad, good and bad ideas. Yeah, just to follow up on that really quickly, is, isn't there, there's a thing also in how we regulate speech uh, that's completely different and very much focused on that change. So in the old days, uh, we had a system of, that punished libel and slander and, and other forms of prohibited speech, but the target was the speech, not the person. The victim was remunerated. There wasn't any effort to like permanently remove the person from uh, the, the discourse. Now the kind of new idea is, okay, this is a bad person. We're just going to take that person off the platform. And it's not the speech. It's, it's the, it's the speaker. That's, that's really the issue. Um, I, I, I mean, isn't that what kind of the same thing you're talking about? It's very much so. And I wonder what you think about this. Actually, I'd love to know, um, is that because of the extraordinary pressure on the generations coming up for anything like job security on the, on the kind of constriction of these are highly coveted jobs and platforms. And as Hannah Arendt had pointed out, a purge is the best thing for um, young people who are interested in moving up. <laughs> it's just a fact. I mean, there's probably, look, that's, that's overtly part of the argument in some of these cases, right? Like we saw the, that, what was that, a New York Times article about the white gatekeeper uh, in the food industry, right? I mean, essentially oh. they were saying is, uh, you know, it's time for more pe new people to occupy these positions. And so, I mean, is, is that part of it? I don't know, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think that, that the, the labor pressure is, without people necessarily consciously thinking this way, the labor pressure is driving the kind of, um, in a time of plenty, I don't think that there would be so much need to not just um, um, hold people accountable and reform them, but to actually banish them so that spaces open up. That's uh, interesting. This mm -hmm. is really like something that uh, I'm profoundly convinced is, is part of the dynamic at play. In a constricting media landscape, these are highly sought after positions. Wanted to ask if there is, uh, if you wanted to share the names of the people you felt like would sink the letter now that's already been, you know, it's already for some people been sunk. Um, or categorize. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. You could do that. And uh, anything you would add or take away from the letter. Like either, if this is a really honest, this is a, to be like, let's take the, you know, behind the curtain. Like whether you think like actually legit, you wish you would put in. Mm -hmm. or taken out because it would have made the letter better 
and anything that you're like that was not worth the controversy so like the public and then the private yeah that, these are good questions and they're guessing. tough questions and i'm going to try to answer them honestly with the caveat that i just think that with all that we've discussed among ourselves i can't probably mention internal conversations yeah. about who we couldn't ask to be on we made tremendous oversights and a lot of them were accidental because it wasn't scientific and like also, uh, we were right. trying to get people's contact information at the same time that we were trying to like get the thing done and get it out in the world. And 150 just was an arbitrary like cap that we put that like we had enough people. I really w wanted to have like Matt on um, in retrospect. <clears throat> I just didn't have his email and like it was an oversight by me. In retrospect, I would have liked to have reached out to Sarah Jung at the New York Times because it's not ideological. Like we start from the premise that like the most canceled man in America, you could make the case was Colin Kaepernick and that the canceler in chief is Donald Trump. This is not just a left thing. It's certainly cancel culture on the right is real. Absolutely. So I, wish, I wish we would have reached out to Sarah John who tweeted about it and made it seem like that was, uh, like there, there was some like well thought out reason why she wasn't reached. It was just no one knows her, no one that we reached out to knew her. We didn't have her email. Um, I think I should have included uh, Brett Weinstein. I think I should have included Sam Harris. There's a variety of reasons why that didn't happen. None are nefarious. You know, just like the idea was that we need to get like a lot of people together and we need to make a document that affirms like basic principles that everybody can get on. And some people after it came out said that they wish they would have seen all of the signatories and if they knew jk rowling in, in particular was on there they wouldn't have signed but no one ever asked to see all the signatories and it never occurred to us it's five different people who are emailing a bunch of different people that we should we should offer to show everybody because we didn't even land jk rowling until like 24 hours before the thing was over so anyway we weren't going to email and just keep harassing salman rushdie every time we got a new a new right. signatory you know right. Um, but in retrospect, you know, like, uh, would I take her off, uh, considering like the amount of grief that that particular issue has caused people that never work or deal with that issue. Um, and, that, and that I, I don't want to get criticism for saying that we never work and deal with that issue because people would say, and why don't you, uh, work and deal with that issue? It's not because we don't care about it. It's because I really believe like Stanley Crouch told me when I was just starting out that like. There's only a, a limit of, of issues that you can really um, seriously engage in in the public arena uh, with anything like authority. And anyway, that's not my issue. But I wouldn't take her off of. I wouldn't take. Yeah, I mean, I mean, trans issues, and and you know, like I'm here trying to defend free speech, and I'm terrified. Uh, I'm terrified. Called the turf. Yeah, I'm terrified yeah. of the whole thing. We're we're working in a climate of fear, yeah. um, and, and and I'm not even afraid so much as I'm also just aware of how cynically the game is is played. But um, I'm certainly no transphobe, so I, I will say that. But I also wouldn't kick her off of the list because um, as far as I can tell, she is somebody who upholds the values that we believe in. And she is also like an issue, or, or she's engaged in an issue where if she is wrong, um, seriously rational and 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 well articulated debate um, exposing how she's wrong to the light of better ideas would be beneficial for a society in a way that just saying that she's an epithet can never be. You know, 
Yeah, I, I think that um, one of the differences I have with a lot of people with whom I agree on politics um, is that, and I had Matt Carp on, signatory mm -hmm. Matt Carp, mm -hmm. uh, historian, you know, fellow Bernie bro, socialist, yeah. Jack. It was a big deal for us to have him sign. That meant yeah. a lot. So, and he and I were um, having a discussion about this and like, I think that, I think that we should not cancel and I don't want to say call out, but I think like, I think the most problematic, oh my God, I can't believe I said that word. The most <laughs> um, interesting signatory for me is probably Carrie Nelson, because I think that his treatment of Salida was pretty bad, pretty cancelly. I also think we can get into this because I this is we'll say, let's let's talk about the Barry thing Barry Weiss thing later because it'll just it'll just dominate this whole part of the discussion <laughs> the way I <laughs> wanted to. Um, you'll have to explain to me why she in particular. Okay, yeah, well, I'll do that now. It's not so so, and I actually agree with what you said about the ad hominem, and there is a groupthink, and there's a laziness, and like just saying Barry Weiss is insert ad hominem is stupid and i think that there are real things that she needs to be asked about i think i see this letter though as like an for me and for matt carp we both were we were debating ali abu nima on this and for me and him to a certain extent we see this as a possibility to highlight the hypocrisy like we do doesn't mean we don't believe the principles of the letter i think there's i think it's totally fair to to um, support the principles. Um, I think Freddie DeBoer had a really good piece on this, by the way, he um, mm -hmm. where he's like, what possible, what could you possibly object to? And then um, also the, the counter argument is that there's a context and sure, that's all true. But I think that like, it's not canceling Carrie Nelson uh, to ask how he can reconcile the free um, exchange of ideas and open debate with what he did with um, Stephen Salida, which was, um, condemned even by the AAUP, which I don't remember that stands for, academic something. I think that's really important, like something that could be asked and should be asked. And I think this has the potential of clarifying some of that stuff. I mean, I don't mean clarify. I don't think that I'm gonna, that he's going to say something. I'll be like, oh, that makes sense. I think it has the potential of shedding light on some major oversights. And I think that... Um, so are that, you that, asking him to clarify the carrying the... No, no, no. Sorry. Um, my point was actually, although I, yeah, maybe I will. My point was that I don't see this as taint. That to me doesn't taint the letter per se. I think we can say, and this is how I feel with free speech stuff. Like that's not the realm. I'm not going to let that be the realm of people I disagree with. Like I'm not going to reject free speech because right. some people I don't like are either believing it or in some cases I would say are weaponizing it. But there's a tendency on the left that I don't really, that I don't like, which is just the like free speech is like liberal and bourgeois and, and it's just not true as a principle, but even the effects, like the most censored people by Facebook, YouTube, Twitter are Palestinians who literally have their Facebooks uh, deactivated. And so I think it's just short-sighted and stupid for the left to dismiss these things as, um, as the realm of you know liberal privilege, it's really stupid. In in both well, in principle and outcome. Well, it can't be the outcome. realm of liberal privilege because we have people on that list who don't partake in bourgeois, partake in bourgeois liberal privilege. We have refugees on the list. We have um, Kian. Uh, I'm going to butcher his last name, and I don't want to Tashbek at Columbia University, who spent years in an Iranian prison. Um, we have Reginald Dwayne Betts, who's one of my favorite writers, 
who did eight years in an adult prison from the age of 16 for a carjacking and who then went to Yale Law School and basically said that he signed because he doesn't believe that we should be fostering um, more unforgiving environments or that people should be marked by stigma. And I think he makes an argument that is so powerful that people don't know what to do with it. So they just uh, focus on Barry Weiss or something like that, or Jesse Single, because how are they going to con how are they going to counter him? We have at least two signatories that have lived for significant amounts of time with fatwas on their heads. Uh, Kamel Daoud, one of my favorite novelists in the French language, Egypt, lives Egypt. currently in uh, Oran, Algeria, with a fatwa right now. He was one of our first signatories, and nobody has has even addressed his presence on the list. He's far from a pampered bourgeois white man. Salman Rushdie certainly gave a decade of his life to living under protection in a fatwa. People really haven't known what to do about him either, other than to say he's famous. Um, so I think that the, the, the kind of criticism has been really disingenuous when you look at the thoroughness with which we put together that list. Well, I mean, does, does, doesn't that reaction a little bit um, uh, reinforce your, your hypothesis about all this? Because it, it's such a thing on social media to create this, I and mean, Katie and I have talked about this before, but this like ick factor around names, mm -hmm. right? Like you, you don't even want to be in the same tweet with a person who has this certain name, right? Or people will they'll throw it out. You but they'll say, "Oh, you're such a Michael <laughs> Tracy," right? And yeah. and and as as a result, people and it's like a disciplinary right. mechanism that's like become very ingrained. Uh, with a whole generation of people now who follow the media in particular. And I felt like that was a lot, a lot of what happened with this letter is they, they, there was a lot of throwing of icky names uh, around uh, that, that was used to cloud the actual issue at hand. Um, I don't know. I just wondered if you that was true, But like on the first day, there was also just like people not really like thinking through why some people would believe in these principles. So, so Noam, Noam Chomsky was trending the first day that the letter was out, like number four in the United States, because basically people were saying that they were so surprised and disappointed <laughs> that he could sign. Which I found amazing. Like, you really know? don't know his work. I mean, right? you, know what I'm you saying? can hate him or love him, but that is so He stands by this principle. Yeah. Why would that surprise you? Yeah. You know, but they were thinking that so many other people should be icky, as, as Matt was saying, that he would steer clear. But that's what actually principle looks like. You know, in France, Noam Chomsky is kind of a controversial figure because he wrote right. the foreword to a book of a Holocaust tonight. Well, yeah. he didn't write the forward. He wrote a, an, a letter or an article, and then he that guy took that and took made that it as, the yeah. forward, yeah, which is different. But he, yeah. but he did stand he up for somebody. Yeah, he that, did. Right. That's right. what he was standing up for, yeah. yeah. And then he turned it into the forward. I wonder if he would have. It's interesting. We should have Noam on again. We should ask him if, if that guy had asked it to be the forward. I wonder what he would say. I would wonder what he would say, too. But clearly, he has a kind of principle that he puts yeah. above um who like he puts it above the kind of collective that he's supposed to associate his name with totally, which i think yeah. is something that we would all be a little bit better if we were we had more like noam chomsky in us than uh kind of like reading the room in us you know right right i mean i i, I that's to me my first associations with Noam Chomsky were this is a person who's not afraid to, you know, stand on the same platform as someone with whom he completely disagrees basically about everything uh, over some other principle. Right. And, and yet that's not the way uh, people expected him to behave in a different way because he forgot. 
right, they've forgotten they forgot what the ideology is, right? Or yes, they're so. so used to people like covering their asses because of yeah. this thing that they probably expected that they're surprised when someone doesn't do that. I mean, I think that if you want to disagree with Chomsky on the content and the principle, that's go ahead. But I think that like the just smearing him, like also go whatever yourself if you're like disappointed in Chomsky. Like, who the hell are you? Who, what, 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 like, judge, right. who gave you these powers of judgment? Like, oh, I want to know who this him. random, yeah. Like, oh, you're Chomsky disappointed you? I'm sure he's devastated. But uh, I, I guess I do, an, another related thing is, uh, so there's the ick factor. I think they're like, an, I didn't think of this before, but now that we're talking, there are like a couple of different ways that people, I think, like, avoid the content, which mm -hmm. is there's the ick factor, there's the identity-based factor, which is that, well, that was fascinating in this case, like, oh, it's a bunch of white dudes. And then you, then you look at the picture and it's like Wynton Marcellus. Jones, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, Orlando yeah. Patterson, Greg yeah, the, Carlo. The, the New York Times, right, had a, had a, had an mm -hmm. image. I can't remember. I know Gloria Steinem was in it. Filthy Jones. Yeah. Jane Betts. And it's like literally someone tweeted like, Look at like this letter was signed by a bunch of straight white men and Glenn Greenwald like retweeted that and said that this is like the exact um, invisibilizing that we saw yeah. of, of Bernie bros of color and women yeah. uh, and LGBTQ people that we saw. Did you consider asking him on? I don't know if that's too like private. Bernie Sanders? No, sorry. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> that would have <laughs> been wish. amazing. Yeah, I know. That would have been amazing. Um, Glenn Greenwald. Uh, yeah, we did. I would have had him on. Um, interestingly enough, he's he's become someone in the past few months that I've interacted with uh, quite a bit on Twitter, and and it's been cool. We really yeah. But like, um, I didn't. I don't have. I was outvoted on that. Interesting. You see this, and this is Scoop. interesting because I assume some of the reasons that you were outvoted on that was because of some of his things that were considered beyond the pale. And I'm not like. It's just not a gotcha. No, I, I don't actually even remember. There were certain names that some people, you know, there were just certain names that anybody wanted. Uh, and then it was like that, like the rest of the people didn't just know. And I don't even remember who it was. Uh, sincerely, I don't remember. And I don't remember what the thing was. But, you know, someone like Glenn Greenwald, he has a huge name and a huge reputa rep reputation. And someone disagrees with him the way that someone, you know, disagrees with a lot of people that have been in the game at a high profile for a long enough time. But doesn't that suggest that, I mean. That it suggests that like, it's not cancellation. So the thing that I want to specify is like, we have a lot of friends, each of us, who were like, why wasn't I on? Are you crazy? Like I'm right. a poster boy for cancellation or, or, or like, these are values that I've fought for, for, for forever. And like something that, uh, you know, Mark Lilla always said that really became kind of like the guiding ethos was like, you might even be better on this issue than us. This is not a prize. This is not a prize. And it's not like our idea of who is the best on this issue or who is anything other than this is trying to be an effective piece of rhetoric for better or worse. And so you're trying to build a coalition of people that can both champion and like reflect like diversity and kind of like all hold the thing together. And so it's a really complicated and it's an unscientific kind of evolving process. And so some people are excluded and you know, like in retrospect, I think all of us, like, had we understood the kind of scrutiny that would go into the list, wouldn't like these are decisions that happened in like, um, you know, a conversation and then we didn't necessarily always revisit. And then the, the thing like kept going. And so I think in retrospect, maybe that person would have been like, you know what, Glenn Greenwald, Greenwald should be on there, you know, because I don't think it was like he's cancelable. I think it was like, 
maybe somebody else would drop off the list who would uh, need to right. get the seventh person. That's what I'm really talking about. You know what I'm saying? So there is the can't, which is which is interesting. There is this dynamic. Does... Which I'll be very honest. One person said so. There's like canceled, and then there's canceled. I can take it. You know, like this person was on, but I can't be on, and that kind of really hurt me and bothered me. But it also there is some like element of like um, truth to that like kind of argument. You know, there were some people that the thing would fall apart with, um, and we wouldn't even get a hearing. So then you say, what is? What is the ultimate purpose and what is, what is our allegiance? What is our ultimate allegiance to? And it's to trying, do we believe in these values that we want as many people as possible to engage? Or do we just want to like, you know, make sure that we get every name that we possibly can think of? And so there, there's, a, there's a kind of imperfect alchemy to the thing that satisfies no one, except I would, I would emphasize that the people that it does satisfy that make us feel like we have done something worthwhile is, all of the hundreds, and I would say at this point, thousands of people that have written us that we never even knew about who said that we captured something that they're dealing with and that the uh, letter helped them. You know what I mean? So, so, that, so that's, one of the, that's the last question I want to ask about is, is the impact of this, right? So how, how do you think uh, ultimately this worked or didn't work? Because it's, it feels to me from the outside that for all the, the hostile reaction that you got, and you got a ton. Uh, you have created a space to have a discussion about this that maybe didn't exist before, right? Which was the purpose of it, right? Right. Um, that was so the purpose more than it was awarding anybody for their work in defense of free speech or anything like that, you know? It was supposed to be that no individual matters so much as getting the conversation going. And like to that end, this has been translated and published in, in Le Monde in France, in Die Zeit in Germany, in La Repubblica in Italy, in a paper I can't say the name of in Japan, in and the Pais. leading daily in the Netherlands, Pais. in Pais in Spain, in La Reforma in Mexico. I have interview requests in Chile. Um, Le Monde has done multiple articles on it. I mean, this is, I, it was published in Finland, a friend told me in Helsinki. This has sparked something that is actually like an international conversation um, in a serious way in multiple important societies um, where these where these issues I mean there have been there, there have been five op-eds in the Guardian or something about it in the UK all the conversation in America this is this is to the good I think uh, much more than me being associated with it or anybody not being associated with it like that was what we were trying to do is to get these things on the table if you think about how hard it is to get a story like that going in 10 different countries for over a week. Kanye West just announced that he was running for president and within like half of a Twitter day, that was over. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you know I mean? he just announced he's no longer running and no one's even really talking about it. You know, like th this has been, this, this is week two uh, of, of a serious conversation about what I think is like a defining aspect of our culture right now. So I think that, um, none of us would say that there were not mistakes uh, made in the publishing process. They're not things we regret, um, people we regret excluding, but that like, the, the, thing, the thing actually accomplished what we had hoped to accomplish better than we had even believed was possible. I, I, there's, there's no question, and, I, and I've, I found this too, just you know, sort of writing a couple of things about the subject. There's an enormous global interest in this um, that you've probably unleashed through this letter, 
right? Uh, and even though it's been something that the right has talked about forever, there's there's a, there's a new way to talk about this now um, in places where it was kind of just something that was only talked about after work between colleagues as much, right? So you, right. you must feel good well, about that private, at least. Yeah, right. totally. Oh, everyone's like, oh, this is what I've been talking about in my private texts or group chats. And it's like now people are talking about it like openly and we're trying to figure out, yeah, we always probably have had things that are beyond the pale or that go, that cross a line. And we're as a, like we're collectively trying to figure out where our lines are now and to try to make whatever we're doing to enforce quickly developing norms uh, on the fly, we're trying to make it more and more fair. And so I think that like, you know, I've taken an enormous amount of abuse. Some people have been, have felt um, disrespected or, or, or maybe that's too strong, but like I felt slighted for not being included. Like lots of us have had negative experiences in the past um, week or more with, with this letter, but, but ultimately those individual negative experiences pale in comparison to what I think has been collectively um, healthy. I, w I do wonder your thoughts on Kerry Nelson and if he should be asked about his actions because that wasn't in college that was recent and he used his you know professional uh heft um and then barry weiss i the for me the issue isn't what she did so much in college but um and glenn greenwell has written about this um but i don't think she's and i do think that people are sloppy and lazy when they critique her but i do think there are concrete things and i think that the issue is that she i don't think um, was totally straightforward or honest about what she had done in terms of, um, I think she tried to brush it under the rug as like, um, as pro free speech, but there really was, I think, a targeting of certain professors, including Masad. Uh, yeah. Do you think that, that like, it's fair game to, to raise the things about Carrie Nelson and, um, Barry Weiss in a way that's not ad hominem? I do. Yeah, I do. I think that, I don't know Carrie Nelson. I know Anne Marie Slaughter a little bit, and I know Barry Weiss pretty well. And <clears throat> I know that Anne Marie, and especially Barry, um, I can say for sure, would not think that they are beyond being critiqued or um, that they couldn't be challenged or that people couldn't, in a good faith way, disagree with decisions that they made or arguments that they made. But I think that the kind of specific um, hostility, I don't know, Carrie Nelson, that wasn't somebody that I was aware of prior to the list. Um, the specific hostility that comes to Barry is beyond disagreeing with um, positions she's taken, even if those positions were wrong and could be effectively argued to be wrong. I don't know what it is about her. She was trending number one in the entire country yesterday. On Twitter, if you think about that, why? Like, how? How is that possible? You know, what has she ever done that justifies that level of investment in kind of um, a schadenfreude or like a cheering for her unhappiness or comeuppance? It, it, it's very strange. And, you know, Henry Sauter has taken a bit of abuse, too. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if there's something that women face that I'm not aware of. You know, there's a kind of hostility that certain women get. Maybe you'd push back on that. I don't know. But I do know that there is a kind of like deeply troubling kind of um, visceral nastiness that gets like 
um, attached to certain names. I don't I know Kerry Nelson at all. Yeah, well, he's he's a straight white man, so that so we can isolate his, the criticism of him as as he deserves as, it, as deserve it. Yeah, I would say. Um, I I think that um, I don't know. A lot of people, I think, were. I, I have a problem. This isn't cancellation worthy. Um, I think the I do. And this is kind of awkward to say. I do think that she was not fully honest about what she did at Columbia. And again, it's one thing to say she was in college, but I don't think she's been uh, clear on what she did. Um, I think I mean, I as a Jew am bothered by her statement that uh, Jews who support BDS are like Jews who reverse their circumcision surgery. Yeah, that, but I just want to be clear. That's not a view that I share. No, our, I know, I know. Our friendship yeah. is not friendship with her is not conditional that you even have the same views on Israel or BDS or any of that. That's not how she. You didn't. You didn't. Are you sure you didn't meet at a um, BDS? Is a lot like <laughs> circumcision reversal and, surgery meeting. And, and Katie, when you go out in the morning and and you think to yourself, I uh, like I enjoy all the the uh, items on the Bill of Rights. Does it bother you that other people in the country also enjoy those the <laughs> those rights? I mean, I think that's that's kind no, of the, the way that a... I look. It, this is it's just a, it's a simple declaration of what people are agreeing to to endorse and I, I don't know to me to me like it's totally irrelevant who else signs the document that I sign well, I, I, do, I think it's a fair thing to look at especially because um, you know as you're, you said there were there were some decisions um, and you know certain people were added certain people were not added so, so I'll be honest so I th- that was somebody that had to be like what are the ramifications of, of them being on the list? And, 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 and the thinking was that she kind of embodies the kind of abuse that were, she embodies being somebody that um, I think has been harassed, bullied, targeted for cancellation in a way that um, is, is exactly um, indicative of the cultural tendencies uh, of the social media era that we're pushing back against and saying are, are um, antithetical to the kind of um, civil society that we'd like to to be in. She is J.K. Rowling, Gary Weiss. These are people that are like lightning rods for extraordinary abuse, and so I think that they need to be on the letter, um, regardless of whether um, somebody might make serious critiques about previous positions that they've taken. They uphold these values. They really do uphold these values and argue for them. And they might have contradictions, but like establish those contradictions. But these are people that, that exemplify the cultural conversation that we're trying to engage in a huge way. I, 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 still, I, like I, I seriously can't wrap my mind around why Barry leaving the New York Times was number one on Twitter yesterday in all of America during a global pandemic. It's, it's nuts if you even stop well, to think about it. Well, that's what I wanted to ask about. So I remember Kurt Vonnegut once talked about how somebody negatively reviewed some some novel and he was saying he was he was amazed at the hostility of it it was like it was like watching somebody put on a suit of armor to attack a hot fudge sundae right like <laughs> like where, where like the hostility that comes out over things that you know in the scheme of things are are not so huge like what does that come from people being freaked out about being inside because of the pandemic? Is it like economic stress uh, or is it some people that, sell it? Weren't some people lamenting her firing? Like I, I'm not, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm, not everyone was. Yeah. And, and she, the point she wasn't of your fired. letter. She wasn't fired. Yeah, no, I know. Fired. Sorry. Well, lamenting herself, uh, her resignation. Yeah. Right. No. And, and I got caught up in it with the self expelling phrase. Right. 
Um, but she, she resigned, but she, I thought she wrote an extremely powerful resignation letter that was probably part of the reason why she was trending so high yesterday, because she made points that uh, I think uh, people have to take seriously. I was just going to say, I mean, she did recently. Uh, what? This is fair game. We're talking about civility and discourse and politicians are different. But she did say that Tulsi Gabbard was an Assadist toady. And then Joe Rogan was like, what do you mean? What does that mean? And she didn't know how to define toady. And she right, couldn't, but, uh, and then he, he asked said her. That she was nervous and she did, and she flubbed. Okay, that. but I mean, but she didn't. But she didn't have any evidence of. I think if you're going to call someone a sadist toady, forget the definition of the word. Okay, I do think that it's on. I think it's like it's not civil discourse or debate to call someone that, especially if you don't have like the receipts. Um, I think that you know that is a a a tox. I mean, that is creating the kind of intolerance and toxic. You know, you're labeled like a supporter for for um, you know Assad um, because of your foreign policy decisions uh, and your your stance on that. I mean, I just think it's like a little bit like it's a little bit. I think um, wanting to have your cake and eat it too. Like she can dish it out, but she doesn't want to take it. Like no, lots know. of people do think that. Well, when we're actually talking about without getting bogged down, what we're really talking about is like we need to have a conversation about where we find these behaviors. Um, just like, like I think that most people agree that like Tucker Carlson's um, lead writer this was revealed to have done some things that were beyond the pale. And so that's not actually like um, a disproportionate punishment whipped up by a senseless right. mob for him to lose his job at the number one rated cable news show in the history of television uh, when he has an, like an alternate persona right. that's a racist. And I think what Nick Cannon said also is something that most people don't have a problem with him facing repercussions for. But then we have all these other cases where we're trying to figure out, did they get to that line or did they stay clear of it? And we need to have like a real conversation about how we deal with, how we draw these lines and how we come to a consensus on what is and what isn't um, beyond the pale. I would, I would also argue, I think part of the point, part of the idea of the letter was to ask, invite people to examine what is it that makes us so filled with rage at people we disagree with that we can't talk about this stuff. And so, <laughs> so when we have one of these letters and look, I was one of the people that criticized people like Barry Weiss for going after Tulsi Gabbard. I was one of the only people actually who, who defended Tulsi in, in print. Um, but I, I do think that this, yeah, but that person sucks uh, <laughs> is, is part of what is getting in the way having a, a more realistic and like productive atmosphere for both academia and the media and, and basically the, you know, the, the whole intellectual world, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, isn't that sort of the idea? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering. That's absolutely the idea because I, I, I start from the premise that she doesn't suck. So like, let's have a conversation about the issues and where uh, she might be wrong and you might be able to like, um, convey to me why uh, this principle that I believe in would be, um, you know, would be contradicted by something that she's done. And then, you know, I, I'm sure that, like, she'd be open to that kind of participation in, in, in a good faith conversation, too. What, what, what reels everything is, is this idea that, like, we were talking about earlier, where there are good and bad people and not good and bad ideas right. or better and worse ideas. And so, of course, that makes anybody feel um, defensive. And then I think when you add into it a kind of, like, what, what seems to amount to a kind of, like, um, extreme bullying, then you're, you're going to get somebody that certainly feels that 
you know, they would like to uphold like uh, these basic principles because that society is is fairer for everybody and they feel they're being treated unfairly. And so then I don't see her contribution to the list as anything contradictory. She's hoping for a society where people don't experience the kind of extraordinary bullying and harassment that she knows what it feels like straight up. Anybody who wants to be in the business of arguing ideas has to put up with pushback. And like, if you're, a, if you know, if you're an, if you're an honest broker, um, I try to always like some of the some of the best criticism I've ever gotten has changed my mind. You know, I'm willing I'm willing to do that. Yeah, you you, you got a lot of uh, craziness in the last couple of weeks. What, what was the quote that you something about being deeply invested in respectability politics? I can't remember exactly what it was, but that yeah, that's <laughs> the counter letter man. The counter letter signed by I think 160 mostly journalists of color. Um, responding with, uh, it was called a more specific uh, letter on, on justice and open debate. In the opening graph or so, it said that like Thomas Chatterton Williams is a black man who believes that racism exists, but can be transcended on the personal level. Can be transcended, especially on the personal level. And it was presented as like some damning, damning indictment of how I'm just like, like beyond redemption. Uh, and, and, and like, you know, an opponent of, uh, of racial justice, where I wrote that as, and most people I've ever interacted with who have read that, read it as me saying, racism is a problem, anti-black racism is real, especially where it intersects with class. And like, 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 race and poverty are actually real impediments. But what's amazing is that I don't live in the same America that my father, who's 83, lived in when he was growing up in segregated Texas. And that I see actually like my very existence is like in some ways a testament and certainly my kids' existence uh, for me represent the idea that like transcendence of this kind of tribal hatred um, can happen and does happen. I mean, we have to have you on again because I really wanted to also talk about, we don't have time obviously, but your, I thought your piece on, um, on the lockdowns were really good. I ripped you off to do, uh, uh, we did a segment on, was it Robin D'Angelo or Richard Spencer who said X? And that we, we, we ripped that <laughs> off from one of your articles, actually, or I did anyway, so. But we'd, uh, but thanks so much for, 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 yeah. for coming on. Yeah, thank I'm sorry you. to keep you on so long, yeah, but sorry, uh, yeah. this- Oh man, it was my pleasure. Like, I love talking to y'all, love listening to y'all. Um, I love what you're doing and it's an honor to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, right. thanks for coming. Terrific. Yeah. Come back right. on so we can talk about your other stuff and not just this <laughs> letter. Pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Take All right. care. Thanks again. Bye. Thank you. So, like, I I actually kind of agree with you that if, if it had been me putting that letter together, I would have been super careful about inviting anybody who had ever exhibited anything that remotely could be described as canceling behavior. Yeah. But... You know, I, I I also kind of fall on the side of the the reaction tended to make the point of the letter. Uh, the rea- yeah. and it, even even the reaction to the hip to to the to the hypocrisy uh, on the list. You know, I, you and I have different opinions about this, but I you know I think that um, it spoke to something uh, that was that's not necessarily great. How do we call in? Let's, I want to, you and me, I want us to find a way to call in people without contributing to cancel culture. I like my idea before from Mossad and, um, Mossad and, and Weiss and Nelson and Salida. Call in like it's opposed to calling out. Yeah. We call them in and we, yeah, we have them have a debate. 
Um, sure. For all the abuse and vitriol directed at this letter, it probably was, I would say, extremely effective in what it tried to do. And, and, and I would even argue that all the additional freakouts over people like Barry Weiss uh, and J.K. Rowling in the letter, that probably actually turbocharged the message a little bit in a way that, that I, I imagine the critics of those people don't intend. Um, right. The, you know, the, they've created a space for this to be talked about. And, you know, all those, all those controversies that were uh, attendant to this probably just amplified the letter, I'm going to guess. Right. We should have someone on who wrote, who was involved with this, the response letter, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I do think that it, it, I think some of the response was a self parody. Um, I also think that, and what I'm trying to do is create a non canceling productive way to engage. I feel that you're trying to yeah. create a healing space. I, I get it. So, I can almost... you don't know, you don't know the, the self restraint I, I was exercising. I know I probably saw felt come off, like, came off as a dog on a bone. Is that the expression? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. But that was me at 40%. Yeah, that, that was your monomania tone uh, dialed down yeah. to to four. No, I mean, look, I get it. Uh, there, there are people that people feel very strongly about. You know, I think that was sort of kind of their point. I'm Matt. I'm Matt. They're canceled to me because they didn't have Glenn Greenwald on. <laughs> he been but is it, 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 it's interesting that they couldn't have Glenn on, and I bet I know why they Russia? couldn't have Glenn. Russia, exactly. Yeah, it's probably why I wasn't on. You know, I mean. Yeah. You know. No, I mean, I, I, I don't know about me, but but I, certainly with Glenn, I, I bet I bet that was the reason. And a lot of people pointed that out. That Wesley Yang actually pointed this out. That had there been any mention of Russia in this whole thing, that it would have the whole thing would have collapsed immediately because he wouldn't have gotten that many that many signatories. Right. That all of this just speaks to the fragility of the whole situation. White to white fragility. Uh, to the white fragility of the whole situation. And a reminder anybody if you have tickets to that thing tomorrow uh, really on, on go. the eighteenth, I want to go. So uh give it up, give it to me. Um it's and us. or we'll figure out how to share it. All right. So that was cool. Um thanks for everybody for listening to thanks. Useful Idiots. Uh, you're rate awesome. and review, rate and review, subscribe, rate and review, subscribe, rate and review, subscribe. I'm trying to subliminally get you to do that. All right. All See right. you next week. Bye. <laughs>